that simple. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. This morning as we begin the third chapter, probably just two studies in this chapter, because really the whole chapter forms a, a relatively singly, singular thought. We have before us Paul's mysterious mission, and I want you to think on it this way. As you ponder the Apostle Paul and you think about who he was, uh, have you ever thought to yourself, why in the world would God send a super Hebrew to the Gentiles? I mean, this guy, if you, if you looked up the definition of a Jew at that day and time, you'd find Paul's name. That's the, it would just say, see Apostle Paul. He was a member of the Pharisees. He was part of the Sanhedrin, so he was of the, the ruling class of the Jewish hierarchy. Um, he was probably an attorney by trade, so he was a Jewish attorney in leadership in Judaism. And in God's mysterious ways, he becomes the announcer of the grace of God to the people with whom he was most completely disassociated. If you remember when Paul actually met the Lord Jesus, it was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and as he's journeying to Damascus, he's going on behalf of Judaism to round up Christians to either imprison them or kill them. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Because he sends Paul the most unlikely candidate probably in the whole world to take the gospel of grace, to minister the good news that all men can be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that someone who had spent his life being a legalist, a, a very religious person, would, would take this grace gift and be the one to take it to the people with whom it would first flourish, the Gentiles. God had intended all along to bring the Jewish people to faith, and everything in the Old Testament really pointed to the cross of Christ. But they didn't get it. And so God, in his sense of humor and his love for mankind, in his love to destroy predispositions. You talk about destroying a predisposed idea, taking someone who thought one way and causing them to understand a completely different way. Paul was on a very mysterious mission. And this morning we see that mystery, and of course it's the mystery of grace. The beautiful picture that we have as God's kids that we're now saved because of the grace of God, not because of religious activity, not because of a bunch of do's and don'ts, not because the lists. The law says do this. Grace says you are this. You get the picture? It's a huge difference. The law says if you keep all these things and you're going to be okay with God, and grace says I've already done it, you need to receive it. They're polar opposites. And Paul shifts from being this Hebrew of Hebrews to this bearer of God's grace to people with whom he shared nothing in common, not a thing. If you were to line up differences and say, here's the differences in humankind, Paul's over here, the Gentiles are over here. I love that. 
because it shows me God's care for his people. It shows me God's love for the lost. It shows me that God can use anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place as an emissary of his grace because it's not based on what I am. It's based on who he is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we now read your word and and begin to digest it and take it in, we pray that you'd encourage us. Lord, many uh, this morning need encouragement. God, help us to be encouraged by your word, that, Lord, you can use each of us, that your plan is, is so marvelous that it excludes no one, that there's nobody outside of your grace. And we pray that as we learn and as we study, that God, you'd bless us, and anoint us to receive, and cause us to walk in your truth, Lord. Help us to love people as you love people. Help us to draw near to you as you teach us. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And here we have the first couple of verses. And for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. And so Paul begins this letter, again he's writing to a church, a literal church in Ephesus, which he himself planted. He's speaking to them about the grace of God, and he uses again that word dispensation, which we've helped you to define and understand. It really means economy. It means the way things function in a linear way, that if you do this, it results in that, it pays dividends, and here's the riches, and here's how you get them. And so Paul is beginning this chapter by reminding the Gentiles uh, that he'd been given these things by God as a way to, to bless them. And indeed, God does have a sense of humor, and God does delight to use ridiculous situations to bring about truth. And if you don't believe that, look around this room. Look at us. Look at who we are. Look at the diversity that's represented in our social standing, in our monetary standing, in our education, in our levels of intelligence, in where we live and what we do and the professions that we have. I mean, what could bring together even us as this ragtag band of humankind? What could bridge all of those gaps? What could fill in that canyon and draw all of us to the one place of grace? It it couldn't have ever been religion. Because when you put two people together and you try and get them to discern some you know, specific spin on an area of truth, you you put two people together, you're going to still get five or six opinions. Amen? You're still going to get ten different types of implementation. And so God in his marvelous plan begins to use the Apostle Paul to knock down the walls that divide and to bring us together in the grace of God. And so he begins by saying, for this reason, it refers back to chapter 2. You see, the Jewish antagonists, those who were really staunch in their Jewish faith, saw the teaching of Paul as radical and absolutely destructive to the temple practices and all that they had done and all that they had learned all the way back to the wilderness wandering. So more than a thousand years of Jewish history and religion were being done away with by the Apostle Paul, one of their own. And so you can pretty well understand that Paul was hated by the Jews. He was considered a traitor, a turncoat. 
He was one of me. You were enlightened. You were one of us. What are you doing? There was animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And unfortunately, because at that point in time, as hard as it is for us to believe, there was exactly one place that, that God really resided in a tangible way, and that was with the Jewish people. Before Christ died on Calvary's cross and grace came into being, you were either in or out by being either a Jew or not. And that was a small group of people. And so on one hand, the Jews became extremely uh, legalistic and extremely possessive of their position before the Lord, and the Gentiles basically considered themselves on the outs. You know, does God really love us? Does he really love all of humankind equally? And so Paul bridges that gap. He, he's the, the guy that we can look at that, that jumps across that canyon. You know, sometimes as, as we live our lives, we feel a little bit scandalized at times, by the way. You know, perhaps other people view us. It's pretty easy in our world to see that the church, those who really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his word is true, are being persecuted. Uh, it, it, it's staggering how much you can say that's just vile and destructive and it's perfectly okay, but you mention the name of Jesus and you all of a sudden become on somebody's blacklist. Amen? It's always been like that. You know why it is? Because Jesus actually bridges the gap. Jesus actually draws people together in grace. He's the one that does away with everything, and when you do away with everybody's petty little thing or their religious view, then all of a sudden your excuses go out the window. And all of a sudden, whoops, there's only one church. As we're going to see when we get to chapter 4, there's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, there's one Lord who's Lord over all. And so, because of what grace does in drawing people together, grace is what's hated. You ever heard, well, you know, it can't be that easy. You ever heard that? I've had people tell me that. You mean you're saved just by believing? Yep. You, you mean I'm going to heaven because of the grace of God, not because of my works that I do? Yep. People, well, you know, what about, how come religion? Well, that's the problem. God didn't invent religion, man did. God invented relationship. He said, I want to know you, and I want you to know me. I want you to love me, and I want to love you. He didn't say, I want you to do this so we can be together. That's what religion is. You see, Paul was about to jump across that divide. And he was going to draw together two groups of people that couldn't be drawn together. And as a bearer of God's grace, can I say to you, you're going to have the same mission? Paul's mysterious mission to the Gentiles is your mission. You're going to be laying waste all of these things that people have invested their lives in. And though it's easy to see the religious implications, think about the social implications. Well, what draws the sinner to repentance? It's the grace of God, isn't it? What brings people out of bondage to sinful behavior? It's the grace of God, isn't it? What sets people free from the bondage of sin and death? It's the grace of God, isn't it? So how much do you think the enemy is going to fight against the message of grace? He's going to tell people that religion is the way. 
because it keeps them in bondage. It's only grace that sets you free. That's why this is so mysterious. Man loves religion. People are overtly religious as, as for the most part. Travel around the world, you will find religious edifices everywhere you go. Doesn't matter where you go. I've been to some of the poorest places in the world. You know what you find? Plenty of churches. It's not the absence of churches. It's the absence of grace. It's the absence of truth. It's the absence of salvation that creates the the issues for mankind. Verse 2 says, For if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by the revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've already briefly written you. He he said, I've told you about this new way of doing things before. He kind of digresses a little bit. He, He looks at this dispensation of God's grace, this economy of God's grace. You see, you can look at it kind of like a retirement plan. Now, I can tell you that none of you who have one have a clue about what's happening in it. You look at your statement, and it says there, well, I'm invested in this mutual fund or that particular stock or this bond. You know nothing about how that works. You just get a statement, and it says you either made money or lost money, and that's basically it. You don't control it. You have no idea what the economy is that brings to bear the returns on that portfolio. It's the same thing with grace. God manages the dispensation of grace. He sent Jesus to the cross. He made the investment. He maintains the investment. And you are saved by that grace. You don't completely understand how it works. I don't completely understand how it works as a pastor. I know this. God knows exactly how it works. And I need to believe in the dispensation, the economy of grace, that in fact when I profess Christ as Savior, and I believe that Jesus Christ was the sinless Lamb of God who was slain, He died on Calvary's cross, what we will celebrate in a little more than a week, as we celebrate Easter week, we're celebrating the economy of grace. That's what we're doing. When we get to Good Friday... When we realize that Christ died on Calvary's cross without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin and sin remains. So we understand in part what God was doing because we know how far from it we actually were. But what we don't understand is how God accomplishes that with the death of His own Son completely. I just know that His sinlessness has been applied to my life. And it's not because I'm sinless, it's because He's sinless. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm I'm bringing this new message to you that takes all of that religious activity and says, you know what, none of it matters. Can I say that to you? All of your religious activity from the standpoint of salvation, getting you to heaven, saving you, bringing you into right relationship with God, none of your religious activity accomplishes that. Not a bit of it. Doesn't matter how good you are or are not with regard to whether you're going to be saved or not, the economy of salvation was accomplished by God through Christ on Calvary's cross and his resurrection. 
he did it all. Every bit of it. Everything that needed to happen for you to be saved was accomplished by God. You have to make an investment in that economy, though. You say, I'd like one share, please, because you can't get more than one share. You can only get your share. Okay, that's it. You can only have one share of the grace of God. In his economy, you say yes to Jesus Christ, you receive your one share, and because of that, you get to go to heaven. It's real simple. That totally cheesed the Jews. They're like, are you kidding me? Look at our temple. Look at the sacrifices. I mean, we have something special going on every day. It kind of sounds like some churches. Look at all the stuff we're doing. Look at the things that are happening. Doesn't save anyone. Never did. Didn't for the Jewish people. It doesn't for anybody now. Doesn't matter what kind of robe you wear or cassock you wear or hat you wear or golden censer you carry. It makes no difference whatsoever to God. He accomplished what He accomplished by grace and you receive it by faith, you get your one share in the economy of God. And you can't receive it for anybody else. You can only get your share. So Paul says in this administration of grace, he, he had, in essence, switched sides. And God then gives you a purpose in that plan. not that crazy? You ever thought about your place in the kingdom of God? That you are so unique that God only made one of you, and that in making the one of you, He's given you a special place in the kingdom, even though that special place was purchased by Jesus, He still wants you to take up your special place. For the purpose of others. For the blessing of taking that plan of salvation out into the world, because you are so unique, just like Paul was so unique, that you have a sphere of influence, you have people you know, those with whom you react in this world and interact in this world with. You are so unique that God says about you and to you, okay, now that you're one of my kids, I'm going to take the mystery that is my salvation, the plan that I laid out, the thing that I accomplished, I'm going to impart it to you, and now you get to go share it with other people. Because it's that crazy. It's still a mystery. People still look at the grace of God and go, oh, it can't be that simple. Do you know that that's, that is probably the number one thing that keeps people from Christ? It's too easy. I can't believe that I just need to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm actually going to go to heaven. It's, it's amazing how many, well, it can't be that easy. And you know what people often use as their excuse? Well, it, you know, I'm just different. Well, duh. Yeah, we're all really different. Not one of us has the same issues, the same conditions, the, the, the same of anything. You look around at us, even in marriage. If you get married thinking you're going to be the same, you're a little loopy. You need to come see me. You're not going to actually be the same. You're kind of you're kind of like you know the the nucleus of an atom and the electrons, opposites, and they attract just enough to hold it together. All that we have is God's. All that we are is His, and we're simply agents to that end. 
verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. What's Paul getting at here? He's saying to know Christ is to know God. That's all he's saying. He's saying to know Jesus Christ is to know God. If you know Jesus, you see, you can't see God. But people could see Jesus. They couldn't touch God, but they could touch Jesus. They never really heard an audible voice from God, but you can hear the audible voice of Jesus. We have his words recorded. Great pains taken by God the Father to write down the words of God the Son so that we might know him. My peace I give with you. Not peace as the world gives do I give, but my peace. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He who drinks of this cup will never thirst again. You you, you see, God's spoken to us through Christ His Son. Told us how God loves us. Who God is. What God is. How He functions in this world. So to know Christ is to bridge a gap that we can't bridge any other way. When I know Jesus, I know God. Now, I don't know everything about God, no more than any husband knows everything about his wife, or wife everything about her husband. But I can tell you this, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. You can't know God without knowing Jesus. Because it is, in fact, Jesus that was sent into the world so that we could know God. That's a mystery. You see, for more than a thousand years, the Jews thought they could go direct. Well, he's right there inside the temple. He's over there in the tabernacle. He's behind the veil. And we'll send somebody in to talk to him on our behalf. We'll make a few sacrifices, and we'll do a few little things for him. And we'll set up this tent everywhere we go, or we'll go to Jerusalem and we'll see the temple, and we'll be okay. You see, that's religion. It's not relationship. That's not a relationship. How many marriages survive by the husband coming to the wife's house, which she lives in all year, once a year, and saying, forgive me for everything I've done this year while you weren't around? You get the picture? That's how crazy it is to think that you can know God and not actually have a daily relationship with Him. Jews didn't have that. They had the law. They had lots of things to do. They had all kinds of things that they were responsible for. Sacrifices to undertake. Feast days to keep. But they didn't have the relationship. Not even the high priest had the relationship. The high priest was actually afraid every single Yom Kippur. There in on those ten days of awe in October, I can imagine the high priest started, you know, probably the month before, shaking in his boots that on on that day of atonement, he was going to offer up a sacrifice for himself and for his family, and then he was going to crack open the veil and go in and hope in, in name of Yahweh that he wouldn't die. That's not a relationship. That's religion. Christ came to bring relationship. 
And so what we know, it says here, that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. We actually get to know God by knowing Christ, by being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us the mystery uh, of the indwelling of, of, of Christ is that Christ in you is your hope of glory. But through that relationship, we've already seen that the mystery refers to God's plan to unite the whole of creation one day in, in the Lord Jesus. And here, how he can bridge the gap between Gentiles and Jews and everyone in between, Muslims, Hindus, it doesn't matter where you've come from. The love of God in Christ Jesus is sufficient to bridge that gap. Christ, in essence, brings the walls of those canyons closer together. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you stand normally on the south rim, and you look across that great divide, and it's a mile down and almost ten miles across at that place. And you look at it, and you're like, there is no way in the world. If you've ever hiked that, which I have, it's 33 miles one way. Down to the bottom, up to the other side. You, you, you see, God brings the walls of the canyon together so that you can reach across the hole. You bridge the gap. That's what Jesus does. And in that gap are Jews and Hindus and Muslims and secular humanists and atheists and everyone else that has their issues. The grace of God bridges all of that. Verse 5, he goes on to say, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. You see, here's, the, here's where it really comes into view for us. This is one of the ways that we know that nobody got saved by any other method other than Jesus through the Old Testament sacrifices and everything that happened. People waited in faith for Jesus to finish the sacrifice. There was always only one plan to save mankind. It was never the law. It was never the temple sacrifices. It was not Judaism. It was always Christ. And everything that the Jews had learned through Judaism pointed to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of glory. It pointed to Jesus. And so when you look at what was said by the Old Testament prophets, and you study their words, you go, wow, that was pointing to Jesus. Isaiah 52:53 was not about the prophet Isaiah, it was about Jesus. Psalm 22 was about Jesus. Psalm 16, about Jesus. Zechariah 9, about Jesus. It was always about Jesus. Hadn't come yet, but there was always only one way. And so those that died in faith, believing what was being said, which was religion can't save you, it's about the coming Messiah, they died in faith and waited. And when Jesus said, it's finished, they're all like, now we get it. Okay, now it makes some sense. The mystery's revealed. It wasn't made known totally then, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. In other words, by the time you got to the day and time that Jesus actually walked on this earth, God put everything together in Jesus Christ as Lord. He said, here, this is how it works. Because we can't make everybody a Jew, amen? That wasn't going to work. 
wasn't going to work, was it? It wouldn't today. If you came and said, you know, everybody's got to be of a single nationality. Think about it. A single nationality and a single language. Because that's what it technically means to be a Jew. And from a Jewish perspective, that is exactly what it meant. You were either a Jew or you weren't. That wouldn't have been very fair, would it? So God needed to do something that was a plan that encompassed the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, it was the only answer. There wasn't another way to do it. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't God going, man, this is so messed up. I can't believe it. These people. You ever thought about that from God's perspective? As God looks at the earth and he sees mankind and, and, you know, we're not the sharpest tools in the shed some of the time. And they come to the Tower of Babel. Well, we'll just make a tower and pretty, pretty soon we won't need God. We'll just climb right up there and we'll just get in the throne room and kick him out because we're better. Only the grace of God can span that. Only the grace of God can fix that. Only the grace of God can reconcile Jewish law and Gentile rebellion to the things of God. Think about it. That's how you bring the canyon walls together. Verse 6, that the Gentiles be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the good news, the gospel. Do you realize what that would have would have meant to the Apostle Paul without Christ? There is no way on this earth that we're accepting those Gentiles. The Jews believed that Gentiles could not be saved. That they would not be resurrected. That, that there was no place for them in God's eternal plan. You got any people in your life about whom you might have said the same thing without the grace of God? Well, there's no way you'll ever get saved. There's no way she'll ever get saved. It's not possible. Too wicked, too evil, too far gone, too far outside of the fold. You know that I've actually had people tell me that the reason people were born Arabs is because they couldn't be saved. I've actually had people tell me that. That they were born Hindus because there was never any chance for them to be saved, and so God had them be born Hindus. You better hope that's not true. You better hope that's not true. Because if it is, there is no grace of God. There's no saving grace if that's true. Because that means there are groups of people who could never be saved. And if there are groups that can't be saved, then no one can be saved. That's why this is such a mystery. And so he begins to wrap this thought up as we wind down this morning. He gives a couple of things that we can look at that brought the Gentiles and the Jews together. He says they were heirs together. Mind-boggling. How do you put together such a completely opposite set of, of people. Jews and Gentiles, heirs together of the same promise? 
That's something amazing. Members of one body. They wouldn't even walk next to each other on the street. If a Jew and a Gentile passed each other, the Jew would go to the other side of the street. Because to get too close might make them unclean. It's insane. And yet God brings the Jew and the Gentile together to where they're one body. Only in Christ. And then he says to be sharers of the promise. And that's not the promises of God promised to the Jewish people. That's the promises of God promised to everyone who believes. It's heaven. It's salvation. It's that right standing before the Lord. It's forgiveness of sins. You see, only in Christ is that type of unity possible. Matthew Henry wisely said, he said, when we take God for our God, we take all of His people for our people. It's all one family, folks. Lots of different flavors. That's why there should be unity in Christ. And when you look at what that does, before we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now we're alive. Amen? You see the difference? Before we were objects of God's wrath. Now we're the objects of His love and His blessings. Before we followed the ways of the world, now we follow the ways of the Lord. Before we were God's enemies, now we're God's beloved. You get the picture? Now if that only occurs because you're of a certain nationality, how loving is God? I would say to you, He's not loving at all. And in fact, He's capricious, He's vain, In fact, he does not love everybody. And so what God did with grace, you couldn't do any other way. He goes on in verse 7, of which I became minister according to the, notice this, the gift of grace given to me by the the effective working of his power. Not Paul's, not religion. Not a set of rules, not a specific denomination, not a group that you belong to, not some specific set of classes that you go to and ultimately you become good enough to be in God's family, but by the grace of God that was a gift given to Paul by the effective working of the power of God, not of Paul. That's why we call it grace, folks. Unmerited favor of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. Remember that little acronym because it really defines exactly what grace is. I have the wealth of God given to me on the back of Christ, on the palms of Christ, on the feet of Christ, on the head of Christ. I have everything I have that God has given me, not because of me, Not because of how good I am, not because of my stellar prayer life, not because of the number of verses I've memorized, not because of any association with other people who think like I do, but simply because of the blood of Christ. Period. That's a mysterious message. Think about some of the world's major religions with this regard. And I'm not being critical here. I'm simply drawing attention. To be a Buddhist monk 
you have to pretty much resign yourself to be useless to everyone, including yourself. You go spend some time sitting on a rock contemplating your navel and hoping that one day your life actually extinguishes. That is the technical definition of nirvana. It means the candle blows out. You cease to exist. You become so good that you become part of the cosmic consciousness. You talk about selfish. It doesn't look selfish. It looks like, man, they're so loving and they, they won't even step on a bug. But it is completely self-centered. Hinduism is exactly the same way. Every major world religion is focused on self. Only biblical Christianity and only grace is focused on others. Because I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. And what I have I can freely share with others, not because of me, because of him. That's the difference. It's a mystery. God has been faithful. God has been gracious. God's the one that creates pastors and teachers and anoints people to do certain tasks. And so these opportunities that we have in the world are opportunities for us to share God's grace. We get to go out and share God's grace with the world. What an amazing calling on our lives. And the awesome thing about it is anybody can do it. If you're one of God's kids, you can share the grace of God. And in fact, you may be better at sharing with that one person than I am as a pastor. You have things in common with them that are so unique to your existence on this earth that just like Paul is being used to reach the Gentiles, it makes no sense, so can you be used to reach that person with whom you're the only one that really God God is anointed to do that. It's crazy. It gives us all purpose. It gives us meaning. And he says in verse 8, To me, whom I am less than the least of the saints, I love the fact that Paul says that. He says about himself, I am less than the least of the saints. He says, here's the bottom, I'm below that. That's what he's saying. Here's the bottom of the barrel of the saints of God, and wherever that is, I'm below that. If there were a ranking of saints, I would be negative 4,815. He's saying, I, I don't even belong in the list of the great saints. And yet, at least 13 of the 14 books of the New Testament, uh, Paul writes, 13, possibly 14 books of the New Testament, almost half. He's used really to plant the church in Asia Minor, all of it. None of it would have existed. And he says about himself, you know why he says that? Because of this grace that was given. He says, how can I take credit for grace? How can I take credit for grace? How can I look at my life and say I had anything to do with it? Christ did it all. I'm just sharing it. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches. Not of Paul, of Christ. Paul basically says, man, I'm lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut in Death Valley. I'm like, <clears throat> you look at low... I'm, I'm below that. I'm like the bottom of the Dead Sea, okay? I'm 2,000 feet below sea level in spirituality. Man, if we could just grasp that concept. 
Because you know what it does away with? And it's a huge issue for us. Pride. It lays down our pride. So when I realize that all I am, all I have, everything I will ever be is because of the grace of God, then anybody can have it. And I'm not the one who bestows it. God is. You see, because we're kind of stingy sometimes with grace. Matter of fact, I can tell you there have been times in my life when I've had certain people that I'm like, kill them, God. They don't deserve to go to heaven. I've thought those. I would imagine some of you have too. Maybe you're not quite as evil and dark-hearted as me, but you've probably thought those things. Like, oh, God can't save that person. You know, I mean, after all, they're one of those. And throw in the sin pattern, okay? Aren't you glad that's not true? Aren't you glad that God's standard is Christ and not your ability to understand it or bestow it or give it or impart it to someone else. Man, I'm so glad that the grace of God is sufficient for all my unrighteousness. My thoughts, my actions, my words, my deeds, whatever. His grace is sufficient. And he says in verse 9, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. We're all in it together which from the beginning of all the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. You realize that that's exactly what the first chapter of the book of Colossians says, that by him and through him were all things that were created, created, and without him was nothing created that was created. Jesus Christ is creator God. And God knew exactly what he was doing when he created mankind. You were not an afterthought. We talk about people, and this is tragic, I am a mistake. I was not a planned child. I was a mistake. My parents have yet to realize that I can do mathematics, so I understand that I was born uh, I was born a little early. How should I say? I was a little early. I wasn't planned. Well, by them, maybe not, but by God. I was planned before the foundations of the world were laid. And I have meaning and purpose. And I'm not bound up by what somebody thinks of me. I'm set free by what God has done for me. And so I have purpose. I have meaning. I matter to God and so do you. And so don't believe the lies of the enemy that that you don't count. You don't matter. Maybe you're an afterthought. Maybe you feel like a victim. That's just simply not true in Christ. The grace of God bridges all of that. And says, come here. I love you. I've always loved you. I've always had your best in mind, Jeff. He did that through Christ. And that's why this mystery is so great. To the intent that now, verse 10 says, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heaven. You realize the angels look down from heaven and go, oh, that's what he meant. That's what this verse says. The angels in heaven, the demons look at the church of God, individual Christians and go, oh, that's the mystery. That's what God was doing. When Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created 
the heavens and the earth, and everything that would come to it. God didn't make any mistakes. God didn't blow it. He didn't biff it. He, he didn't have to come up with an alternative plan because his first plan wasn't any good. you realize that that is most of the world's actual position on what God does? They think that everything that's happening now is because God made a mistake, and because God made a mistake, he's now having to clear it all up. It's not what your Bible says. We were created, we already saw, in Christ Jesus, before the world was created, for good works that we should walk in them. God's always loved you. He's bestowed His grace. Literally, He has begraced us according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus was always the plan. Everybody get that? The temple wasn't the plan. The tabernacle wasn't the plan. The sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah was not the plan. Jesus was the plan. He has always been the plan. There is no other plan. There's one plan. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. Singular, just one. The truth, singular, just one. The life, singular, just one. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Exactly one path to God. To all there's ever been. God's grace is sufficient. In whom we have boldness and access and confidence through faith in Him. Notice I don't have boldness, access, or confidence in me. I have it through Jesus. You know why our prayer lives are hindered sometimes? Because we've sinned. And we lack some boldness because we're sitting there going, well, I don't think God could actually listen to me or love me. You see, that's the remnants of your flesh. Because by grace and through faith you've been saved and you still have access to God the Father. Look at it this way. You know, we've had the sequester and now there are no tours of the Capitol building. But let's go back a couple of months before the United States of America was broke. And, and you go on a capital tour, you call your congressman, you call your senator, and you get this little ticket, it's about that big, and you go to the window there at the White House, and you hand them the ticket, and I, I'm able to go on a tour, and you line up, and you queue, and you get in line, you're going through, and you're in the White House, and you get to gaze into the Oval Office, and, and look at the resolute desk made out of that British warship, and you're staring, it's like, yes, I'm in the White House. Imagine this. The President of the United States walks up behind you, taps you on the shoulder. He says, you know what? I'm not doing anything tonight. Like to have dinner? I'm pretty sure you'd all take it. Amen? And oh, by the way, well, some Dan wouldn't. but And oh, by the way, you get to spend the night in the Lincoln bedroom. And we're going to have dinner and we're going to talk. You're all going, yes. You see, you can't buy that ticket. Well, you can in certain circumstances. Um, for purpose of analogy, you can't buy that ticket, okay? And, and, and the president taps you on the shoulder and says, Yeah, why don't you come on back and we'll have dinner together and just hang out. That's exactly what God did in Christ Jesus. Taps you on the shoulder and says, You know, by the way, I'm the ruler of the entire universe. And I would like to spend time with you. And it's not because you deserve it. You just kind of got in the line. You're one of many. But I love you so much, I'm tapping you on the shoulder, and I want to sup with you and you with me. I want to have a relationship with you. I don't want you to just be part of the big tour. I want you to come in, hang out in my house. 
Hallelujah. That's why it says, and therefore I ask you not to lose heart, Paul says in my tribulations, which is for your glory. You see, there's a reason to this madness of our world. There's a reason for the crazy things that we're going through. It's so that God's grace might be made manifest to the world. Because God can point at you and say, you know what? Look at Chris. Man, he's been going through some tough things. And see, he's still walking with me. He still loves me. Look at Cece. She's been, she's had this, this stuff going. Steph, man, he's gone through that thing. Greg has gone through these things. And I begraced them. And because I've begraced them, they're okay. It's going to be okay for you too. That's why we're still here, folks. Because your lives testify to the angels in heaven and the demons on this earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, I thank you for the work that you're doing in us. Lord, in this church, in our lives. Lord, for the beauty that is you. And God, we pray that you would just continue to make us ministers of your grace. Lord, that that we'd take no credit for anything that's done. God, it's all about you. Lord, may we have opportunity each day to just pour out your grace on others. Lord, would our lives count for your kingdom. Lord, would the things that we do and say truly put a smile on your face. Lord, thank you for tapping us on the shoulder in that line by faith that we might have a relationship with you. Pray that we would make that relationship known to the world so that the world through you, Jesus, can be saved. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Just stand.